Uh, welcome to Meatbone Express, the filmmaking and cinema podcast. Uh, today we have Thomas Frank, who is the author of Listen Liberal, a book that has become a sort of huge international success, particularly through uh, internet media sources. Thomas, welcome to the program. Hey, it's great to be here. Uh, the first thing I want to ask you about is Hillary Clinton's uh, campaign, a bit like uh, Barack Obama, had great celebrity uh, and Hollywood endorsement. Why didn't this work this time? Uh, it never, that never works though. It ever, it, this is one of the uh, continual, like, um, what would you call it? Like uh, fixed ideas of the Democratic Party that, uh, that celebrities are really good for endorsements. I swear, I've been, I've been um, arguing with them about this for a long time. Well, they used to, you know, I used to be able to argue with them. Now, now it doesn't matter anymore. But, <laughs> but the, 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 the idea that because celebrities are, you know, we like to go to their movies. You know, everybody loves to go to movies and everybody loves... Um, you know, Hollywood films or whatever, that therefore that, tr that can transfer via the star to the Democratic uh, politician, uh, that doesn't work. When, you know, people actually deeply resent, it's, it's strange, they'll go to Hollywood movies, they love Hollywood movies, but they deeply resent those people as individuals, uh, celebrities. Um, you know, well, it's, it's aristocracy, of course, right? It kind of makes sense. And... Um, they have the Democrats can't can't see this, and they just keep trying that again and again and again, and they're always astonished that that doesn't that that doesn't help them out very much. You know, all the celebrities, celebrity endorsers. No, that's not how you win an election. It turns out. Is this uh, relevant to your thesis of uh, liberal elites having taken over the Democratic Party? Is this part of the same logic? Is it part of the same bubble? Well, yes, and the, the yes because uh, you know. No, I'm, this is this is going to just be a completely and utterly shocking to you, but Hollywood stars are an elite. <laughs> you know, they're very, very wealthy, uh, very beautiful. They live in these gorgeous mansions in Los Angeles, California, and they are an elite. And the Democrats can't seem to figure that out. That that's you know that that's not how you reach uh, reach ordinary people. But the the larger point that I make in Listen Liberal is that. You know, conservatives have talked about the liberal elite for forever, uh, but they never say what they mean by it. They never explain it. They never look into it. They never. And uh, I decided to actually do it. You know, what, what does this mean? What does this phrase mean? Is, is it is it all bullshit? Am I allowed to say that, by the way? Of course. Is it is it all just bullshit? Is there something to it? Is there something real about it? And there is something real about it. And what you know, and it's it's hiding in plain sight. I mean, all I had to do was just the research was. Uh, was very simple. All you do is read Democratic Party, you know, strategy documents and you know articles that they write in their magazines where they talk about who their uh, uh, you know their demographic groups are. And the number one uh, you know group that supports Democrats is uh, the professional class. And by professional, I mean very affluent people with advanced degrees, uh, doctors, lawyers, uh, that sort of thing. But it's all—it's a very large category now. It's not just your traditional professions. It's all over the map. But whatever their occupation is, they have—they are—you know—it's based in—it's a high-status occupation that's based in educational achievement. So always highly educated, always very affluent, and that's their number one constituency. Okay, and that's also who all the, le the leaders of the Democratic Party are always drawn from this group. And they have, over the years, developed all of these theories, these sort of 
half-assed pseudo-Marxist theories about how this group is going to triumph, you know, in hi historically the, the great dialectic of creativity and innovation. And so this is, and this is all out in the open, by the way. This is not nothing secret about it. Like, remember um, that book, the, uh, the Triumph of the Creative, Rise of the Creative Class? I'm sure it was huge here in Australia. I mean, it's huge everywhere. Everybody is, is into this stuff. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Democrats really buy that. They really agree with that stuff. So you look at it, the professionals are an elite. They're not the elite of society, they're, but they're one of the elites. Um, they're people whose privilege is enshrined in law. Like you can't just walk into a courtroom and start pleading. You have to be a member of the bar, you know? They're, they're, the, 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 uh, the privilege of the professions is, is a, a matter of law. It's, a, it's how our society is structured. They are society's officer corps. You know, the rest of us are all just enlisted men. And um, that's who the main constituency of the Democratic Party is. Now, the reason that's shocking and strange is because this is a party that has its brand, um, you know, uh, identity is as the party of working class people, the party of the people. And but in fact, they have abandoned that, you know, group of voters for this other one. And that's that is the entire uh, story and the entire problem. And the, you know, if you want to understand why Hillary lost, seek no further. So there, there's this, uh, you know, relationship with with, with Hollywood. Uh, uh, but what about uh, new media and the Democratic Party's relationship with Silicon Valley? They love Silicon Valley. So one of the things that I um, that I sort of cataloged in Listen Liberal is the way that the Democrats have. Um, have sort of, uh, you know, they, they love certain industries and do these sort of amazing favors for certain industries. The one that was most noticeable that's, that's come back to hurt them the worst is Wall Street. Beginning, so when I was young, uh, the Democrats were the party that hated Wall Street. If they got in, they'd crack down on the bankers and they'd regulate them in this way and that. And, you know, Franklin Roosevelt broke up Wall Street banks and, you know, did all this stuff. Um, and so they have this long history of being enemies of Wall Street. But then in the 1990s, when Hillary's husband, Bill Clinton, was president, they changed 180 degrees on this. And they became instead a party that was competing for Wall Street's affection, along with the Republicans. Uh, and in fact, they did arguably more favors for Wall Street than the Republicans did. Uh, the dere when you know, Bill Clinton got the big deregulation of Wall Street passed. It wasn't Reagan that did that. Reagan couldn't get it done, but Clinton did, and Clinton is a Democrat. And so the party had, in the 90s, completely reversed its stance in regards to this industry. And um, Silicon Valley is the same kind of thing. Democrats absolutely love this industry. Um, you know, all these, just think of uh, Barack Obama and Mark Zuckerberg, all the times that he shared a stage with this guy, or uh, Eric Schmidt. So I'm writing Listen Liberal, you know, and it's, a, it's a study of the Democratic Party, and this name Eric Schmidt just keeps popping up everywhere I go. And every time I'm like, I'm like here, you know, looking at pictures of Obama in the early days of his administration, and here he is standing next to Eric Schmidt. And I'm reading, you know, there, here's Hillary Clinton giving a speech in The Hague, and she gives a shout out to Eric Schmidt, who's sitting there in the audience. And you, uh, you know, he keeps cropping up again and again and again. And by the way, if you read the Podesta emails that were on WikiLeaks, he's all over the place in the sort of uh, councils of the Democratic Party. Eric Schmidt, this is the CEO of Google. He's very close to these guys. Now, I can understand, I know, you know, they want to be, uh, Eric Schmidt is an influential American and, and they, they should have their, you know, their views heard. Um, he has a lot of lobbyists, 
Uh, he's a very powerful person. But if you're the party of the people, if you're the party of working people, you should seriously be considering not like, what can we do to be nice to Google? It's how can we make sure that Google doesn't take over the economy? You know, this is scary what Google is doing or what Amazon is doing or what Facebook is doing or what um, Uber is doing. Instead, the attitude that you get from these Democrats is this uh, uh, worshipful reverence towards these people. So are you essentially saying this is a deal with the devil? Well, yeah, but that implies that you get something from it. <laughs> you know, they just lost. They yeah. made this deal and they lost. Where's the payoff, you know? When, when you have Facebook and Google on your side, how can you lose? <laughs> well, we're learning. We're learning the answer to that, how you can lose. And, uh, and Uber, don't forget that. So the Democratic Convention, they struck a special deal with Uber uh, to ferry delegates back and forth from their hotels to the convention center via Uber cars. And I don't uh, ride in Uber. You know, that's one of my things. I take a traditional taxi. And so one day I was taking the traditional taxi over to the convention and I had an elderly friend with me, a journalist. And uh, I'll be damned, we weren't allowed anywhere close to the arena and we had to get out a mile away and walk. And this is in this in incredible American heat. You know, it's in Philadelphia, it's 100 degrees and we're walking across black asphalt. And it's insane and you're, you're losing your mind. It's like crossing the Sahara. And at some point you walk into, there's a tent halfway across the, this vast parking lot, this vast sort of Sahara parking lot. And we walk into the tent and the tent is air conditioned. It's the fucking Uber tent. That's where everybody else is getting dropped off. And they struck this special deal. Now, you know what Uber is? Uber is exists to circumvent uh, like wage and hour regulations in America. And that's the model. That's what they do. You know, and you can call that innovation if you want, but that's ruination for working people, that model. What is the perception of liberal Hollywood and the messages in Hollywood films in that central area of America, the, the, the heartland. What is the relationship? Is, is, is there a disconnect? Obviously, people in America like to go to movies, right? Like every, people everywhere. And they like to watch TV, like people everywhere. But they also hate it at the same time. It is a love-hate thing. And um, the culture wars are really about this. I, I mean, this is when I was writing What's the Matter with Kansas. This came up again and again and again. And what I finally decided was that People, you know, they like being entertained, but they hate the fact that they have no say in uh, these movies and in the assumptions. You know, if, if you watch a Hollywood movie, they, they make all sorts of cultural assumptions about what's right and what's wrong and who's good and who's bad. And, and movies like entertainment has since time immemorial deals in stereotypes. And these people see themselves on the receiving end of those stereotypes now. Um, and that's not a secret. Uh, that's not a, you know, a clever observation that I came up with. This is this is well known. <laughs> and it pisses people off. And so, yeah, they love watching TV, going to the movies, but they also fucking hate it. Um, and so that's that's America. I mean, we're torn. Um, we're torn. And we just elected it. I mean, think of the last. Well, OK, not George W. Bush, but Reagan and Trump are both, you know, uh, entertainers. You know, they're known for that. Or someone like uh, Rush Limbaugh or Glenn Beck. These are entertainers. That's what they do. Does that compound things? If it feels like a double whammy, you're, you're, you're taking away my uh, way of life in regards to my work. The factory's not here anymore. And then you're telling me I'm an idiot. Yes, yes, that's, yes. And that is, uh, by the way, that's the, the heart of all this stuff. I'm, I'm married to an economist. And um, one of the things that, you know, 
that people will often quote orthodox economics to you on trade as a way of sort of dismissing or poo-pooing you know, complaints about trade deals. But if you read orthodox economics on trade, they say, okay, you, when you have free trade, it's not going to be a winner for everybody in society. It's going to be good for some people and it's going to be bad for other people. And what you have to do if you're going to do these kind of deals, you have to find a way to uh, support or, or redistribute uh, to the people who've been harmed by the trade deal. Well, we don't do that in America. We scold those people, the losers of the, from the trade deals. We tell them that they're dumb shits. You know, and we and we yell at them for not understanding economics and not going to college and for you know uh, having dropped out of high school or whatever and working at a, in manufacturing. Like, huh, what kind of idiot are you working in manufacturing? Um, and we laugh at them. That's how we treat them. So yeah, we wreck their way of life and then we laugh at them. It's 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 a it's a you know it's a lose lose. It's a terrible way of treating people. Why is uh, Trump's rhetoric more protectionist than the? so-called center-left socialist, more socialist party. <laughs> God. They aren't so, they, that's a word that, that we, that doesn't apply in America. You know that, right? They, they, they are our left party in our two-party system, but they're not, uh, you know, uh, they have trouble even with the idea of a welfare state. That is extremely controversial still in America. Um, uh, the word socialist, they would never use to describe themselves. And in fact, this is, this is one of the big problems they had with Bernie Sanders is that he likes to use that word to describe himself. So free trade. Uh, free trade is means different things to different people. You know, you might think it means uh, uh, zero tariff or you know low tariffs between countries so they can trade back and forth. Well, we have that. That's not really uh, a big problem. Um, what is a problem is when we negotiate trade deals with countries that are specifically designed to protect certain industries uh, and certain classes of Americans uh, and to expose other classes of Americans to devastating forces. The, the classic example is what's called NAFTA. I don't know if Australians know what it is. You know what it is? Okay, so it's a trade deal between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. And it's not a free trade deal. Um, people will often refer to it as a free trade deal, but in fact, uh, tariffs with Mexico were very low before NAFTA was signed. What NAFTA, and NAFTA is 2,000 pages long, remember. If you wanted free trade, you could write that in a paragraph. NAFTA is 2,000 pages long. What it does is it goes through, uh, you know, rule by rule, and it prohibits the Mexican government from expropriating or, or even taxing or even regulating American property in Mexico. Uh, and this is important to the American capitalist class because in the 30s, Mexico nationalized the oil industry, including a lot of American property. And Ameri the American sort of ruling class has never gotten over this. They're still pissed off about it. <laughs> and so they took that power away from Mexico with NAFTA. And um, NAFTA made it possible to move a factory um, to just a few feet on the other side of the border with America and then employ... Uh, Mexican workers who are paid, you can pay very, very little. They don't have organized, they don't have independent unions there. It's a, uh, you know, it's a very corrupt system uh, labor-wise. And so you can uh, make your products for, you know, one-tenth of the price or whatever, and then ship them right back, you know, back into America. And that's what they did. Uh, and everybody, that's what the treaty was designed to allow American businesses to do. And that's what the treaty achieved. And so the American labor movement was like, you know, no way, do not pass this deal. This is going to be terrible for us. It's going to ruin American manufacturing. And um, 
guess what? They did it anyway, and it did ruin American manufacturing, and it particularly ruined organized labor in America. Now, here's the punchline. The guy, the Republicans negotiated NAFTA, uh, and their lobbyists, you know, they negotiated NAFTA, but they couldn't get it passed because the Democrats back in those days is in the 90s. Democrats used to control Congress, and the Democrats in Congress were pretty left-wing. They were very pro-labor and that sort of thing. So Bill Clinton comes in, Democratic president, elected in 1992, and he gets that thing passed. He sets up a war room. He's got Rahm Emanuel at his side, you know, and he runs a bulldozer over those labor guys in Congress, and he just smashes them, and he gets this thing passed. And so it has been, ever since then, a source of extreme bitterness for organized labor. This is the moment when their party put the knife in their back. And this is, Clinton is a the guy, they went out and worked their ass off to get him elected. Mm -hmm. And they gave him all this money, as they always do, and, uh, and he betrayed them. This is huge. It looms very large in the working class mind, uh, NAFTA. Also because it comes up in every negotiation. If you go and... Uh, negotiate, you know, with any kind of contract negotiation, management will threaten to move to Mexico. And not just, they won't just threaten the unions, they'll threaten the city. Like, you know, I'm from Kansas City, so the, you know, whoever that makes, you know, garden hose or something like that is like, you know, give us this, 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 and this, or we're going to Mexico. It happens all the time in America. Um, and uh, so they've got a weapon that nobody else has. Anyhow, that weapon was given to them by Democrats. And uh, working class people are extremely bitter about this to this day. And uh, this, was, this election was one way of looking at it, and I think this is not an in inaccurate way of looking at it. It's payback for that. And by the way, just a little PS here. And Trump campaigned on this all the time, and Hillary was totally vulnerable on it because her name is Clinton. I mean, she said she's changed her mind on this. She's seen the light. She's come around. Uh, she's against NAFTA too. You know, all this stuff, nobody believed her. Nobody believed her. Um, the PS I was going to say is that this is, for, for working class people, it's a source of incredible bitterness. For professional class people, it's a kind of guilty conscience. And I've talked about this for years. I mean, I've written about it. It's, I think it's probably in every book I've ever written, uh, NAFTA. And uh, your sort of professional class people always dismiss this. They laugh at it. They've always said, that. oh, that means nothing. Everybody knows that that's not a big deal. These people are so stupid and protectionist, and they don't understand free trade, and they didn't study economics in college, and so they just don't get it. But the, the fact is they understood it better than these professionals. Do, do you think that the professionals, uh, uh, because they're much more comfortable in their positions, just have more of a theoretical understanding? Yeah, but also it benefits them. I mean, yeah. it, it makes stuff cheaper. Uh, it, you know, this is, so both, all the trade deals and our like immigration system in America is all designed to benefit one class of Americans and punish another class. Um, example, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which involved Australia. And we say, oh, that's globalization, that's free trade, but it's not. This was negotiated by lobbyists, okay? It's not, if it was free trade, again, it would take a paragraph. That's not what it is. It's this extremely complicated agreement. Look at this bird, what is that? Do you, are you, do you know I don't about know birds? The, I don't know the name of that bird. Uh, Your so. birds are all foreign to me. I'm a bird watcher <laughs> back home, but I don't know. I can't identify any of them. They're, I don't know if it's a piping sh shrike, maybe? I'm not sure. Looks kind of like a shrike, doesn't it? Anyhow, so the, um, an example of this. So they negotiate. Part of the deal is to protect um, uh, uh, copyright, like to extend uh, patent and copyright protections. And this exclusively protects two very important American industries, Big Pharma and Silicon Valley. 
probably also Hollywood too. And uh, th that is protectionist, but they're protecting very rich people. They're protecting the professional class. But, but workers, of course, get exposed to ruinous competition. So for them, it's a race to the bottom. But for Silicon Valley, this thing is... is uh, I want to ask you about uh, Steve Bannon, because I think that's a, that's a, a, a good segue. I was reading a, a review you did of um, his film Generation Zero, yeah. uh, which you, on one hand, you were quite scathing of, but at the same time, you, you, could, you could recognize if you kind of zoomed out, there were some general truths. And, and in some ways, the thesis of that film is very similar uh, to Adam Curtis's work, as in they both seem to pinpoint uh, the 1960s as uh, sort of being problematic. Yes. Okay, but let's wait, take a step back. So Steve Bannon, this is the puppet master behind Trump. He's the genius, right? He's the, he's the brains of the outfit. Well, sort the, of like Karl Rove was. Well, with, the, the, the one thing I just want to say, because it was like what you were saying, uh, that uh, it's socialism for the rich, but it's capitalism for the poor. Yeah, well, that's true. When they say things like that, uh, you know, and I don't remember if Bannon says something like that. He might. That is correct. That is what America is. If you were rich, there's these incredible protections. Jesus Christ. Oh, well, he talks, Bannon talks about this in, in Generation Zero. When the stock market would start to go down back in the 90s, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, this avowed libertarian follower of Ayn Rand, would actually intervene to prop up the stock market. Now, who does that benefit? <laughs> Think about it. Oh, the people at the very top. So Generation Zero is a documentary about the financial crisis. And the first 20 minutes or so of it look like a real documentary of the financial crisis. I wasn't thinking of Adam Curtis. I was thinking of, there's another one called um, Inside Job that was big in America. Uh, very good documentary, uh, straightforward documentary of the financial crisis, interviewing a lot of participants, um, people that were insiders and knew what was going on. And for about the first 20 minutes, Steve Bannon's documentary, and they came out at the same year, by the way, the same year. Um, Bannon's documentary looks exactly like that one. He's interviewing a lot of people who are experts, uh, you know, a lot of the sort of stock footage of, of uh, skyscrapers in Manhattan and this kind of thing. And then he takes the weirdest turn. He's, uh, he's talking about, yeah, he's showing Hank Paulson, who was the Secretary of the Treasury under Bush, Hank Paulson with his cell phone clamped to his ear, desperately trying to arrange a bailout. And then he goes from that footage of that to footage of the Black Panthers in the late 60s, you know, at a protest somewhere. And it's like, huh? <laughs> what the hell does that have to do with this? Hmm. And it's, it's, it's weird because everything about Generation Zero, the surface arguments, you know, the, the, the financial crisis happened. Yes, it was really bad. Yes, it had a lot to do with mortgages. Yes, uh, bankers are corrupt. Yes. And then the, it takes this crazy turn to the 1960s, and um, here's the, f and 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 so you're right. It's in my Guardian article. I, I demolish this and I take it apart. It's it's a it's a complete uh, red herring. It's a bullshit explanation for what went wrong. To blame, you know, the bad values of the baby boomer generation for the housing bubble, you know, is ridiculous. And he doesn't even try to prove it. Like, show me the hippie. Who bought the Who bought the McMansion? Show me the hippie that was running, you know, uh, Citibank. <laughs> you know, that was signing off on these things. Show me the hippie that was uh, that was lending the money. You know, he never does that. He doesn't even try. Uh, he doesn't show any connection. But there, the funny. This is the funny thing. Um, there is a connection, and he doesn't know it. Um, 
and I, I don't know why he doesn't know it, but this is the story in Listen Liberal. This is when the Democratic Party gave up on working class people, was in the late 60s and early 70s. And they did it because they loved the counterculture so much. This is, it's so weird. There's a famous book, it's forgotten now, but famous at the time, came out in 1971. Um, uh, the author's name, Fred Dutton was his name. He was a Democratic insider. He was an advisor to the Kennedys. He was, later became a lobbyist, I think for like Saudi Arabia or something like that. But anyhow, at the time he was a big Democratic insider. He was a member of a commission that the Democrats had uh, called the McGovern Commission. And the idea of this commission was, this is at the end of the 60s, um, they'd had all these riots in 68, and the Democrats had lost the presidency to Richard Nixon. And so the Democrats said, we need to take stock of who we are, and we need to um, change the party, change what we stand for, change who is our, you know, who, is me who are members of the party, who we appeal to. And this commission was charged with doing that. And they decided to remove organized labor from their structural position in the Democratic Party. Okay, that's thing number one. Who were they going to turn to instead? The um, youth movement, the kids, the enlightened countercultural youth. And this guy, Fred Dutton, it, so I, I've written a lot about the counterculture. You, you don't know this, but um, in my earlier work, I used to write about youth culture and uh, what went wrong in the 60s and what the 60s were about. This is a subject that I know a great deal about. And there were a whole lot of sort of establishment, middle-aged people who loved the counterculture. So in an earlier book, I wrote about how the advertising industry loved the counterculture. And they would look at this thing and they'd see um, enlightenment, uh, you know, a kind of transcendence, uh, you know, uh, an, an awakening, you know. Um, they'd look at the musical hair, for example. You know, this is the age of fucking Aquarius, you know. And uh, uh, th this guy, Fred Dutton, was someone in that vein. And he looked at the counterculture and he could see nothing wrong. This was like, this was so obviously what Democrats needed to identify with and needed to embrace. All the smart kids, and by the way, when they meant the counterculture, they always meant the kids at the elite colleges. It's always that. It's not kids of that age listening to rock and roll who happened to work on the construction, or who, on the production line at General Motors. No, that's not what he means. He means the kids at the fancy schools. Not even kids at like a community college or at the state use. Always at the fancy schools. That's always what they were referring to. And they saw in these kids just like, this is the coming of the Great Awakening. And he was like, that's the Democratic Party. That's who we have to be. And that's, those people are, of course, that's the professional class. Mm. And that's their leader, Bill Clinton, the leader of that generation, you know, and his wife, Hillary. These are the two sort of, two great figures that come out of the, that culture of the 60s these are the people that deregulated wall street so there is a connection mm. <laughs> it's just slightly more it's slightly more complicated than steve bannon seems to know well is, is the the sort of uh, cyber utopian uh, thing kind of came yes. out of this oh yes so, yeah i mean there's many angles to this but yeah silicon valley is an, as an industry exists as a it, it, as it comes out of the counterculture steve jobs you know, all that stuff. The counterculture has given us an industry that is so, that is redistributing the wealth of America in the most grotesque fashion, ruined the working class. It's part of the problem that the left has problems with concepts of power. When you look at a lot of revolutions and things that have come out of social media and social networking, like Occupy Wall Street, but the you know, revolutions in Europe and the Middle East, they all seem very... You mean like it, the Arab Spring? Yeah, very ineffective in, in the sense that they, they once they find some kind of power or, or, the, or they 
they become a large enough group that they don't know what to do. They don't yeah. have a leadership structure. Yeah, the glamour of revolt, the glamour of revolt sort of uh, overshadows, you know, the practical side. And it, this is the great lost promise of Occupy, by the way. I mean, this is a movement that had this moment where people were like, people were listening and people were ready uh, and people wanted to sign up and there's nothing to sign up for. You know, wh who, where do I go to sign up? Who's the leader? What's the platform? What's the manifesto? It doesn't exist. And this is, this is a tremendous lost opportunity. Uh, is, it, is it possible uh, that, that what's, what Trump has done, and I realize he didn't get a, a, a majority of, of the vote in the country, but is it possible that he's unified some of that uh, outrage in the Occupy movement uh, with the Tea Party? Oh, it's possible. I, w I wouldn't want to speculate about that, but I will say um, uh, something that you can... Even by people staying home and not voting. Oh, yeah, that possibly, possibly. But there's, um, yeah, well, certainly the, the Bernie supporters, I was a Bernie supporter, and a lot of Bernie supporters um, were really felt like they'd been treated shabbily by the Democratic Party and were not psyched about getting out there and working for Hillary. Uh, and, you know, maybe they went and voted for her, but they certainly didn't go out there and... Um, go door to door or do anything like that. They, they really felt like the Democratic Party treated them. I mean, look at who she chose for VP. She didn't even choose Bernie or one of Bernie's friends. She chose, you know, someone from her own faction of the Democrat, another centrist. She didn't even give them the time of day. You know, <laughs> they got nothing. You know, she did nothing to mobilize them. Trump, at least in his, um, in his convention speech, the Republican Party, Trump gave a shout out to Sanders. Now, I mean, he still does. Yeah. He still does. Yeah. He still he says, I, I like Bernie. You yeah, know, he would say yeah, that. Yeah. His, his rhetorical skills are on another level. So another thing that you can point to, and this is something you can nail down, um, uh, you know, statistically, are uh, people that voted for Obama that went to Trump, or counties that went, went for Obama that went for Trump. And I mean shifted in from like a majority, for a good-sized majority for Obama to 80% for Trump, rural counties in particular. Uh, and that happened all over the country. And I know people that voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. It happens. Your piece about the Bannon film, uh, which I agree is it's not a good film. At least it was putting forward a narrative. It, the film, did believe in something. Uh, one sort of criticism of the left at the moment from uh, who we've talked about, Adam Curtis, is that uh, he, he sees the problem with the liberal left is they don't really believe in anything. Hmm. Uh, yeah. do, do, do you think that's a problem? That's the problem with Hillary Clinton, yes. Uh, the, the, this was a, a campaign of utter complacency. Um, she had, uh, I mean, what was her economic program? You know, I'll give you $100 if you know. <laughs> no one knows. No one knows what it was. We know she was, uh, for one thing, she wanted to shatter the glass ceiling. Uh, and that sounds great, right? Uh, and women should be, uh, obviously, um, you know, be permitted to ha hold the highest jobs in our society. Absolutely, I, I agree on that. But that also seemed, that also seemed really self-interested. I mean, it was obviously, it was her. You know, so there's this union of, of the philosophy, or of the, of the reform impulse and the individual, but it also just looked selfish. Um, and, it, and it was also very, pro it was professional class. Hillary, this is, the Democrats, one of the big problems with them it blowing off, listen liberal, which they have done, they're not, they, are not interested in it. I'm not on in, you know, TV and radio in America very often. But your previous books, you were? Yeah, I was. All the time. Yeah, but not this one. Is it... Is it uh, <coughs> but one, one, one of the problems with this is that they don't even recognize uh, how, how stupid they look. So here's Hillary, and 
it is like uh, everything she's proposing is class centric is defined by class uh, you know a class worldview professional class worldview like the idea of running as a resume candidate and talking about like you know uh, about how what an expert you are on things come on that yeah that's going to appeal to like lawyers and phd's and people like me but not to the not to the broad public her idea of running a a, a campaign of national unity with you know we've got republican experts we've got generals over here and at the democratic convention it was one republican after another uh, walking across the stage and telling us how great Hillary was. Yeah, that's, you know, that's not going to cut it for average people. Nothing that she was, I mean, the idea of saying America is already great. The system isn't rigged. <laughs> to say something like that in a year when the, the country is exploding with rage is so deaf. Was that arrogant? Uh, it was, I wouldn't say it was arrogant. I'd say it was foolish. Um, uh, you know, because I think she really wanted to win. She would have done anything to win. Uh, to what degree? Is there something unhealthy there? The staging of election night was, you know, obviously under a glass ceiling and it was all, oh, there were fireworks Hillary. ready to, ready it's, to it's, go. It's, it's all, it's, it, it's, do you, you know what jinxing is? Do you, what's the word? Yeah, I don't know what you call it here, but there, you know, when I, I'll tell you an awful story. So I, on election night, I was on ABC News, by the way. I was on your broadcast because I'm not on any American one. And before that, I'd been, I was on an American TV show, but it was a very left-wing show that's not widely viewed. It's called Democracy Now! And I was on this show, and uh, they were showing, before I came on, they were showing a clip of all of these uh, voters in some town in New England putting their I Voted sticker on the grave of Susan B. Anthony, who's a famous suffragette back in the day, fought for women's uh, suffrage back in the day. And I saw that, and I'm like, that is such jinxing. That is, that is like jinxing in Eight Ways to Sunday. It's like, never do something like that. The general rhetoric of uh, the, the angry white man is, is uh, uh, what do you think of this uh, rhetoric? It seems that we've kind of created a group uh, uh, that maybe that almost doesn't have the right to speak anymore, or at least that's the way they feel, and it makes them angrier, creates yeah. resentment. Well, I've been writing about this for a long time, and I always thought that they were um, exaggerating. You know, th th there's... There's a whole sort of right-wing culture in America that wants to hear your grievance and that wants you know wants you to uh, to, to to bring you into their sort of culture of grievance, um, where it's always about these things. But it's like it's like the Bannon thing. It's it's all sort of true on the surface, but then you scratch the surface and it's it all falls to pieces. It's all bullshit. This is the Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck. Uh, right-wing sort of perma culture that you have in America. And yeah, I've been writing about this for a long time, but this election, it's much beyond that. It's white women too. Um, uh, and we often say the white working class did Trump in, but it's further than that. The black working class, who the Democrats always count on to show up at the polls and deliver the victory, always count on these guys. They didn't show up this time. They were not enthusiastic about Hillary. Uh, you know, and they were, yeah, they, they loved Barack Obama eight years ago, but look, they haven't seen a whole lot of improvement in their lives since then. And uh, this was across the board, the working class, you know, and Democrats brush that off. They don't want to look that thing in the face. They don't want to acknowledge that it's true. And this is, well, I mean, we're all caught up in the politics of the moment now and Trump's you know, latest idiocy, whatever it is. But this is going to go on. This is going to go on and on and on. You know, it's not going to reverse on its by itself. You know, it's not going to just change, go away like Democrats hope it does. This is going to continue. I don't want to get you into trouble, but uh, 
is there any part of you that's optimistic uh, for the next four years? A movement to, yes, to towards non-globalism yeah. non uh, and, and things like that. Is, is that not the silver lining? Well, I don't know about that because it's, it's so what Trump was saying about the free trade agreements was, was, was true, but then again, you scratch the surface and he doesn't know what he's talking about. He, he will tell you something about NAFTA that turns out to be completely wrong, you know? Um, do you want an example? You don't need sure. an example. Okay, okay, I'll give you an example. So he was talking about how the trade agreements were really lousy. Hey, I agree with that. And then he says, the reason they're lousy is because our government uh, uh, negotiators don't know how to negotiate. And that what we need to do is get a lot of businessmen in there and they'll negotiate a good trade deal. It's like, oh my God, that's who negotiated them. That's the source of the problem. He's completely misunderstood. So yeah, silver lining, but this guy, this guy, you know, he said a lot of things that were good. Um, uh, building up the infrastructure in America. Yeah, man, that's a great idea. Do it. Get out there, blow a trillion dollars, build new highways, fix our airports. Man, I'm all for that. He's going to screw it up somehow. There's another by, by the really uh, interesting looking bird over there. Um, the real silver lining for me is that the Democrats have been knocked back on their heels and the Clinton faction just took a hell of a, you know, a baseball bat upside the head back in November. And they still have not figured out what to do. And there is a very good chance that um, uh, uh, people, that the left wing of the party could come out on top. Now, there is not much of a left wing of the party left anymore. There used to be a very uh, uh, you know, robust one. It was large. Um, there's not much of that left. But it could happen. It could happen. Ellison. Got Perez. The, got, yeah. yeah, Perez got the job. Yeah. And, and um, it just seems so unshakable. Yeah. The, well, the, the Clintons have the money. And they have the votes and the loyalty. Well, I mean, look, go back to the election for a second here. Um, from hindsight, we can see that Hillary was the weakest candidate they could possibly have run. Had they run Biden, had they run Sanders, had they run O'Malley, had they run anyone, they probably would have beaten Trump because Hillary was uniquely vulnerable on the trade issue in, the, in a way that none of these other people were. Um, Biden, you know, in particular had a way of talking. He comes from this blue collar background and he has a way of talking to those voters. It, it wouldn't have been the disaster that overcame Hillary. Uh, Sanders, same deal. Uh, and uh, but Hillary, you know, was uniquely vulnerable in that she, yet she got the nomination because the entire party came together around her and chose her as the successor to Barack Obama. Obama himself designated her as his hand chosen successor. Every office holder in the party was behind her. I mean, Sanders had what, like four, like four or five people. She had 400, you know, uh, the, the entire party came together to ensure that she, it was her turn. Dynastic succession, by the way, this is the logic of, yeah. this is not the logic of democracy. Mm -hmm. This is the logic of, you know, royalism. And, uh, uh, you know, and that's the source of the complacency and all the other things that, that, that eventually brought her down. But, um, uh, that machine has not been disrupted. Okay. Yes, their uh, their leader, uh, you know, fell on her butt, but the uh, the machine itself is, is still is still working. But I actually want to ask you about RT uh, Russia Today. The yeah, uh, you, I'm the, familiar. With yeah. I've been on there before. Yeah, yeah. I've I've seen you on uh, one of the programs. I was on uh, Tom Hartman. Yeah. Yeah, so he's a really good guy, by the way. He was a, he was a Hillary, I believe he was a Hillary supporter. I think he was a Bernie supporter. Well, at, at first, sure, but once Bernie was out, mm. you know, then I'm pretty sure he became a Hillary supporter. I mean, he had to. Well, right? well, how do you see RT's place in the media landscape? Because I, I feel like uh, the most devious thing they're doing is actually doing a pretty decent job. You know? <laughs> 
<laughs> I would have never said that. I don't watch it. I, I'm only on that one show, and I'm um, I'm very reluctant to do that anymore after the after all the revelations of the kind of stuff they've been doing. But uh, I've only been on that that one program, and other than that, I don't I, I don't watch the network. So. Sorry. Okay. That's okay. all I got. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's just interesting because you have the, the, the Hartman program. Uh, you, you have some programs. That well, he's a really good guy. Now, he also does a radio show, and I knew him from his radio show. I, he's, uh, you mentioned Jimmy Dore. Tom Hartman is a very similar kind of person. I think he's wonderful. really like him. That's my endorsement. Well, well, what, 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 they're, what they're doing is, um, uh, which I think is really quite devious, is giving jobs uh, to some pretty decent people to run the programs how yeah. they want. They have, they have Larry King, don't they? They have Larry King, they have they, Max they, Kaiser. Yeah, yeah, well, Larry King, not all that long ago, I mean, in the 90s, was, I mean, there he was like the, the, the you know, one of the senior figures of American journalism, highly respected. So anyhow, but I, I don't, like I said, I don't watch any of the other programs, so. Uh, I just want to ask about your uh, journey with this book in regards to the media and uh, what it's been like uh, uh, being a part of the alternative media. But I used to write for the Wall Street Journal, so that makes it even you know more interesting. So when I started out in, in book publishing, you, you could not sell a book unless you did certain TV shows and certain radio shows. And um, I'm not going to go into that. I've been on those shows many times. And uh, this book comes out and uh, I'm not invited anymore. And I'm, uh, and they're, they're they're pretty blunt about it. It's like, no, we're not interested. Even after Trump got elected, and you can say, look, here's the book that called it, and, um, and you know, and you call them, and they're like, nope, not interested, not interested. And these are people I, I like. I had a personal relationship with with some of them, you know, a, a couple of years ago, back when I wrote for, um, you know, when I used to criticize conservatism, and you um, know, I still do criticize, as you have heard, but uh, no, they're not interested anymore, and. Um, that in itself is a story. I haven't written that story. Somebody has to write it. Why they're not interested, it's, it's really, I mean, they are just not interested in, in that left critique of the Democratic Party. The, the but, book seems more relevant now than even yeah, before. But, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Trump, you know? But um, it is strange that it is getting out with alternative media, and this is all new. God, when What's the Matter with Kansas came out, I met the people who were starting YouTube. They came to one of my events. There's just got like three of them or something. It's in 04. And, uh, and now, it's, now it's everywhere. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, it is, it is amazing what's going on. Now, do I, do I write? I still write for The Guardian. That's pretty establishment. Um, but yeah, it's, it's weird to find yourself uh, going from The Wall Street Journal to um, nothing, basically. But you know, how, right. how, is it nothing though? Because the you know the the, the relevance of the newspapers is sort of no, that's right. That's right. And but by the way, that's the other part of the story. The New York Times is not. I mean, like the obvious place to be saying the things I'm saying is the New York Times, and they are not interested. They do not want it. They're, they're you know they've turned down. You know, my publicist in America obviously has tried to get them to run excerpts from the book. Nope, not interested. We don't want it. You know, forget it. It's really strange. Um, you know, I used to write for them too. <laughs> I've written for everybody, and I mean, I'm 50 years old. I've been around, uh, but no, they're not. Nobody's interested anymore. It, but the alternative media, or I don't even know if we should call it that, but the the, the web media. Yeah. The, so the, the Young the, Turks, by the way, is uh, you know these guys, or you know about them? Of course. Yeah. So they're. Uh, yeah. It's a very similar phenomenon. I was talking to one of them the other day, or the other month, 
and he said something really interesting. I don't know if I should quote him, but but basically, uh, let me just do this. I'll, I'll say they are doing a really interesting thing, which is they've realized that the mainstream media is circling the wagons, and there's this very limited range of opinion that's acceptable in the mainstream media. And what that has done is that's allowed you know this huge broad area of material to cover and ideas to discuss that the mainstream media isn't dealing with. And, uh, you know, it's opportunity. If you're smart, that's opportunity out there. But they don't see it. The mainstream media doesn't see it that way. Well, like I say, I used to write for them, and I don't anymore, okay? Something is going on. Um, they are, as these things are changing, they are shrinking the window of the acceptable. And the, I mean, in terms of demographics, I don't know anyone that reads the Wall Street Journal, but I can tell you plenty of people that watch the Young Turks or listen to Jimmy Dore yeah. uh, and, and sort of check these things out. So I guess, what, you know, what I'm sort of asking is, it, does it even matter you, you, have you, if you're being embraced by, by this, um, um, these other networks? I, I, I mean, uh, I assume... Your does it matter? Yeah. Well, yeah, of course it does. The book, you know, it... Uh, it is selling now, but it took a, it's been a year. It took a year to get this thing going. And um, uh, my other books were bestseller, you know, come on. It's, <laughs> it's very different. <laughs> it's very different this time around. Is, is it a situation where- uh, By the way, when I started, it was all, everything was print. The internet didn't yeah. matter. Mm. So <laughs> my magazine was all, was a print magazine, the Baffler magazine. People are still talking about your book. Is it, is it, is it a, a sustained thing that's just it just it has going? been yeah. Well, Trump. I, I thought it was. I thought it would cool off after the election, but uh, Trump has made it all relevant again. So, and by the way, after I get done here, I'm going to Scandinavia. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I'm going directly from this beautiful, temperate uh, city where the flowers are in bloom to winter in Norway, and then I'm going on a tour of the uh, American industrial states that Trump won: Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, so on. Um, um, so the paperback comes out in America when I get back. And yeah, it's just, it's constant. And I don't know when it's going to end now. I don't want to sound like I'm boasting, by the way. I'm not. This, is a, I, this has been a, a humbling experience, this book. So, I mean, it's totally different than, than the, how the other ones have been received. Well, this one's self-critical in a way, isn't it? It's, it's you, you're having a look at your own side. Yeah. Uh, yes. and, uh, are you yeah, but that should be legit. That's nothing wrong with that. Of course. I mean, if you're an independent intellectual, you... You know, we, we're supposed to answer to a higher cause. We're not partisan. <laughs> Are you finding, uh, as I have found, that a lot of the left is becoming quite anti-intellectual and in some ways political correctness is stopping all kinds of discussions? Yes. Usually that accusation goes the other way, though. I wrote a book about anti-intellectualism years ago. It's called One Market Under God. And uh, it was about how uh, the free market people were against you know we're anti-intellectual and there you know there's a hundred ways to, to to play that out and it was it was kind of striking at the time and but yes uh you know anti-intellectualism the, the phrase gets thrown around a lot now especially at trump and trump supporters but uh yes there you see it on the left too and the place not the left you see it among the democrats too and the place that you see it is their utter blindness about class issues and their dismissal of them and refusal to talk about it or even countenance them um, unless it can somehow come back to their favor um, you know politically but on trade deals for example I've been hitting this nail for 10 years 
and you can't get the time of day from these people. They won't pay attention. They won't talk about it in a straightforward way. They will believe, they will, they will say or believe anything to distract from it. Now they talk about automation. They're all like, trade isn't important. It's all about automation. It's, no, it's not. That's incorrect. But they, 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 they all believe this. Well, why is there such an obsession with uh, identity politics when they can't touch class? America. <laughs> class is thought to be uh, a dirty uh, issue, a dirty word. Um, uh, it's supposed to be a classless society. People think, people think it's very uncomfortable to talk about class, uh, especially in the kind of we're talking about, you and I are talking about it in a very brute and uh, unvarnished way right now. You could never do that in politics. You have to go about it in there's you know in a, in a much more circumspect manner. But there are still ways to do it. Um, but it also it's it's also the guilty conscience of the Democrats that they aren't in touch with working class issues any longer. Um, and that's uh, uh, yeah they're very reluctant to talk about it. And also look the uh, the uh, uh, identity politics in every other that's a winner for them. Um, in every other respect, but not in, in this one. So you've got this weird situation, by the way, and this goes way back too, where the Democrats talk about race and gender and the Republicans talk about class. And it's, it's you know, upside down, yeah. The, world, <laughs> the world's turned upside down. This happens in our system every, like, 100 years, where the parties will change position. And, um, you know, the, 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 so the Democrats, when they were founded, were obviously the party of common people versus an aristocratic elite that was inherited from Britain. Uh, and that's how the Democrats started. And then eventually they became the party of slavery and they were identified as slavery. And the Republicans came in and were, uh, you know, uh, obviously for the downtrodden and this sort of thing. And Republicans remained the more progressive of the two parties for quite a while. And then they sh switched again in the 1890s and then again in the 1930s and we're it feels sometimes like we're going through another switch like that although trump is is an imperfect you know to say the least <laughs> bearer of that of that of that change bannon describes trump as a blunt tool for bannon's own yeah. ideology you know trump doesn't always speak with an auto cue he says a lot of yep. things that are yep. not always accurate yep um and I'm just wondering, is that going to be sustained or will the media adapt to his mode and, and look at the, this kind of bigger picture? I don't know. I, you know, I don't even know if the guy's going to last as president. He, he just seems so uh, like he's like nothing we've ever seen before. And, uh, the, you know, they, they used to say that, the, the, you know, that it's a very hard job being president and the president, it doesn't matter who they are, they adapt to the job and they learn how to do it. Wow, he's got a lot of learning to do. Um, the other uh, idea you hear around a lot in Washington is that Trump has basically outsourced everything to his vice president, Mike Pence. You know, and this, that's the guy who's really in charge. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, every day you wake up and he said something else outrageous. Like the thing this morning, is, you know, that Obama's wiretapping, uh, wiretapping him when he was running for president. And it is outrageous, but then you stop and think about it, all those Snowden revelations a few years ago. It is, you know, and the Democrats are saying, oh, the president can't do something like that. It's like, I don't know. I mean, we didn't know what he was doing before that. That was very shocking, uh, you know. But, and then Trump's war with the CIA. I mean, Jesus Christ, this is, it's crazy what is going on now. So... Who the hell knows? Are, are there uh, a, a lot of uh, sort of Democratic um, voters that are kind of secretly happy with the results simply because they want system to be smashed apart? Well, okay. 
Sure. I'm, uh, yeah. I mean, look, I'm one of those. I wanted the system to be sh shaken up, but I didn't want Trump to win. You know, the thing is that, you know, I have children and I'm a responsible member of society. And, and, and you, know, you know, I like having Australia as our ally, for example. You know, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. But yeah, I wanted the system to be shaken up, but I didn't didn't want this. Uh, you know, I voted for Hillary. Um, you know, it's easy to see that this guy is toxic, or it was easy to see. I mean, what the hell are we saying? He's only been in for a month. Anything could happen. He could be a success. I, do you want to know how? It's easy. If he if he uh, renegotiates a few trade deals, and he gets. Uh, manufacturing growing again in America, it's, which is not unthinkable, by the way, despite all of these Democrats laughing at the idea. It could easily happen. It could happen, start happening tomorrow. Uh, and if he gets with his, uh, if he does the infrastructure spending program, a trillion dollar program, he'll get full employment. And if he gets full employment, wages will go up and he'll get reelected. If wages go up, it'll be like, people will be like, awesome. Finally, you know, we're getting something too. And they will reelect him if he achieves that. Um, that's, the, that's what matters to average Americans. Which, you know, following the election, uh, what you just laid out there uh, seems to roughly be his stated goal. Mm. Yeah. The, the, prob the big problem here is that uh, the things that I just mentioned, I mean, I don't know if the Republican Congress will go along with them. The, the Republican Party, by and large, are still free traders. He's the only one that isn't. Um, they don't believe in deficit spending. He's the only one that does, <laughs> you know, on those issues. He's like he's more like a Democrat, you know, like an old school Democrat, you know, like 1950s or 60s Democrat. I see the Democrats as a, a socially liberal, but but really quite sort of a capitalist. Right. And, yes. and, and they can sort of bring together yes. a coalition. Yeah. He seems to have gone underneath. Yeah. He's doing what I what I was uh, what I was saying they were going to do. If you go back and look at what's the matter with Kansas, that is like that was clearly the direction that they were heading in. And the idea of what's the matter with Kansas was to warn Democrats. Um, one of the ideas was to warn them about what was coming. And by the way, do you know what the, the response you would know because you're not in America, but you can look this up. So at first, the Democrats were very interested in what I was talking about. And uh, the book was, you know, a uh, success. And, you know, a lot of people read it and a lot of people commented on it. And then after about a year, um, the political science profession came together and announced that what I had described was not really happening, that the white working class was still very loyal Democrats. And you didn't need to worry about them uh, leaving the Democratic Party and voting for Republicans. And this was uh, a complete fantasy. And the Democrats bought that. They accepted that. Well, it's very comforting. You know, they haven't done anything wrong, nothing to worry about. Look where we are. And I've been saying this for a long time, exactly what you just said. That's what they're going to do. That's mm. what they're, look at what they're doing. That's what they're going to do. Mm. And it was easy to see coming. I mean, I didn't think Trump would win, but everything else about it was easy to see. How much of it was surgical and uh, uh, picking the right states and and, and Yeah, he turned out to be college. good at that. He turned out to be very smart about that. Trump is interesting because he seems like a, oh my lord, what is that? Is that a swan? Yes, a swan, yeah. It's black. We don't have those in America. Oh. So Trump seems like an imbecile when you listen to his public statements. But he has to have some smarts to have figured that out to, to uh, go after. First, the trade issue which would, as I said, only works against Hillary, not against, had, they, had the Democrats chosen anyone else, it wouldn't have worked. And um, to do it and then to, to, to hit those industrial states and just keep hitting them, um, you know, right up until the last moment, uh, yeah, he played it really well. 
Uh, he played it like a pro, which is funny because he's a complete novice. I mean, the whole thing is, is weird when you think about it. <laughs> he was able to defeat the world's most, you know, uh, uh, well-oiled political machine. Is it just the cliches of it's refreshing? He's he's being human. He's um, uh, speaking off the cuff, and and, yeah. and and which is something that's very hard to kind of calculate in, in in maybe polling or a pathway to victory. But it's kind of worked for him. He's been relentless. Yeah. And the relentless. Well, a lot of people confidence. speak off the cuff and they say really stupid things that don't mean anything. He, he it's also what he was saying. I mean, the manner of him of his speech was was important because he seemed so vulgar and crude and unvarnished. But it's also what he was saying. Yeah, that is very important. Absolutely. They called him the blue-collar billionaire at the Republican convention. I watched an interview with a guy called Sir James Goldsmith, who was a ruthless capitalist, really. From the Thatcher era? Yeah. I watched him debate someone who was a part of the Clinton administration. This is in the, in the, in the 90s, just when they were putting in, um, I think, just putting in NAFTA and GARP was coming in. Okay. And, uh, and he was saying, look, I'm a, ruthless, I'm a venture capitalist, I'm, or I'm a corporate raider. Yeah. Like, yes, but I what, remember this guy now, yeah. But what you are about to do is going to disrupt large sections of your population and cause social unrest and, and you know, because it's illogical that manufacturing would stay here when it can go somewhere where, mm-hmm. the, where the labor costs are, are, so, uh, low. are, are yeah. so low. And this Clinton person, uh, person from the administration said, no, no, it's not going to happen. And yeah, they, oh, they all said that. They were, they were completely wrong. I mean, you can't say they were lying because it, these are predictions. But uh, many people said that. Ross Perot in America, a billionaire, uh, you know, sort of a, a gadfly, said the same thing. And they blew that off. And they, if you go back and so when I was writing Listen Liberal, I went back and looked it up. And yeah, the Clintons were predicting that manufacturing would grow in America. And it would be more, it was the complete opposite happened. By the way, interesting fun fact, uh, NAFTA is deeply unpopular in Mexico and Canada too. All three, the, the working class people of all three countries were ruined by this, not just the Americans. So in Mexico, it destroyed family farmers, destroyed them as a, you know, as a group. And they're like, because now they can import the um, you know, American mega farm, sort of, you know, stuff from Kansas is coming down there and wiping them out. And they had been a protected uh, group before NAFTA. And it's like, now they're wide open, boom, drop the bomb on them. And so they are the ones that are now flooding into these um, Maquiladora regions working in the factories, all of these Poor people who were had their life, way of life destroyed mm. by NAFTA. Mm. So NAFTA is hated in Mexico and in Canada. It brought down the government. Mulroney, the guy that, that signed it, he lost because of NAFTA. It was mm. <laughs> that's how hated it was. It's is it now? Think about that. A trade agreement between all three countries and all three countries are losers from it. How can that be? <laughs> well, is it is it uh, uh, that they've just looked at it purely in a numerical way? Well, they know because it's good for some, it, it's class. It's good yeah. for some people and bad for others. Yeah. Uh, the number of people that it's good for is very small, but it's people like the people I live around in Bethesda, Maryland. They're doing great. But Ohio is like your guy Goldsmith said, you know, look at it now. Now look what's happened. Yeah. So o- overall, your country might may be more wealthy, but if you've uh, disrupted the lives of potentially millions of, of, of people. Yeah, it's really, if you think about it in a balance of power way, the balance of power between labor and management, this was, uh, this totally tilted the scale um, in management's favor. That's, that's, that's the easiest way to put it. Um, and you, but it's not just NAFTA, it's the deal with China, uh, all the different deals put together. And they're all done along the NAFTA model nowadays. So um, 
the uh, uh, if you look at you know American GDP is is really high right now the stock market is way up uh, but the way wealth is distributed in America is more e unequal than ever before uh, or in our since World War II you go back to the 19th century it's very similar to what it is now but um, uh, like the their economists have phrase the labor share of gross domestic product and then there's the uh, owner share which means capitalist share the stock market you know that sort of thing and uh, labor labor's share is lower than at any time since World War II or has been for the last five years or so um, and uh, the, the, the share going to of GDP going to people who own is higher than it's just straight-up distribution of wealth and NAFTA has an important role in that because as I said before it, it provided management with the, the most incredible weapon that they can always threaten to leave so they now have this weapon that the other side doesn't have and they use it all the time that is important there's nobody no no Democrat that talks about NAFTA that will ever acknowledge that that's true but everyone in organized labor knows it's true you do any kind of research and you run into that immediately but the, the liberals can't acknowledge that they won't talk about it so with this book, it being self-critical and, and not being embraced by the mainstream media, has it been a hard road personally? It was at first uh, because, I, you know, you spend, when you write a book like this, it's a big uh, investment of time. Uh, it took a year. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't have a regular job anymore, a regular journalist job. So this was a, a, a gamble. And, um, uh, and it was, at, at first, it was very disheartening that, that nobody was interested in it. But... Um, Come on, here we are in beautiful, sunny Adelaide. I'm happy. I'm very happy. Well, I, f I figured that it's it's just going to sustain. We're talking about this book here. I told a friend in Melbourne uh, you were coming. And she wants to marry you. You know, like, <laughs> I'm already taken. Yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, that's you know that's wonderful. And, oh, and like oh. I say, I write for the future. So, uh, you know, my friends and I, when we were starting out in the world of, of literature, you know, we'd always talk about who we write for, and we, you know. I always had trouble imagining the audience, but that's who it is. The audience is the future. So, so you know. So you feel that you've done the right thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, no. As an intellectual, yes. I mean, yeah. Uh, if I was a more partisan Democrat, I might f feel bad about it, but I'm not. I mean, why would I be? You know, there... You know that that's 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 that is not a, a serious intellectual position to be to be a partisan person, um, and I like to think, even though I'm not in academia anymore, that my life is about taking ideas and history seriously and not trying to come up with lies in order to, you know, get somebody elected or some bullshit like that. I don't give a shit about that. This is bigger. As a final question, I just want to ask you: This is a, a filmmaking podcast. What is your favorite film and why? <laughs> It's called uh, The Best Years of Our Lives. And it is the most beautiful evocation of what America used to be like in the uh, 1940s. Yeah, I love, love, love that movie. You ever seen it? It's an, uh, it's, I don't know if it uh, translates outside of America very well, but it's a great movie. What, what is it conjuring? It's about uh, three servicemen coming home from World War II and the various things that happened to them. And it's uh, you know it's it's it was a celebrated movie at the time, but it was it was really ahead of its time in all sorts of ways. But you, you got to see it. You'll you'll see what I'm talking about. 1946, I think it came out. 
it seems like something well before that period of sort of pessimism in cinema, American cinema. Yeah, it's it is a the movie has a happy ending because that was almost required by law in America. So they tack one on at the end. But as with all of these movies with happy endings, if you just delete that, it's it's you know, it, wow, it's a it's a depressing uh, film. But it does, like I say, um, the 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 you know, the the hero and 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 his girl get married and it has a happy ending. So. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the program. I wish you the best with your continued tour around the world. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of life in this book left for you. So I think. Thank it's, you so uh, much. That the, is very kind game. of you. I love your country, by the way. Thank you. Thanks All right, a lot. man. Beautiful.